Hello, and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by Hybrid Links. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Welcome to this episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast. This week, we are going to discuss the subject of value that language translation companies deliver or create for their clients in so many industries. To speak with me about this topic, I've invited Nick McMahon, the CEO of United Language Group, or ULG, which is one of the world's leading language solutions provider. Nick has more than 20 years of experience working for many of the top companies in the language industry and has traveled extensively in almost every continent. During his career, he has worked on language solutions for diverse projects ranging from healthcare and education disparity to commercial market expansions for the world's number one control valve manufacturer and effectively supported the entire Fortune 500 to achieve their global growth and expansion. In all of Nick's experiences, the impact and opportunity of culture and language have been the constant foundational theme. Welcome to the Translation Company Talk, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Sultan. Thank you for making time to speak with me today, Nick. Uh, please give some background about yourself and, and what you do. Yeah, so I, I've been in the localization industry for about um, probably 25 years. Um, and then, you know, in terms of background, you know, I, I, I start off as a junior project manager. And um, back in the day, I came into the industry by accident. Maybe we'll pick up on that like a little bit later. But it's, you know, I, I was looking for a project manager job and I got a project manager job in the language industry. Um, and then I sort of went through, you know, uh, effectively all functions. So I've been an account manager and I went to sales, the dark side and I was a business development manager and I've been a director and an operational director and a COO. Um, and I've worked, you know, I've had the, the, the luck to, to have opportunities um, to work in RWS through SDL. Um, it was SDL when, when, when I was there and also Lionbridge um, and then some smaller scale companies via um, and Yonkers. So I've worked at, you know, a lot of different ranges within the industry and a lot of different uh, organizations within the industry. Um, and typically I've been at those companies, you know, for five or six years, right? Maybe a bit longer, I guess, overall, but um, but I, it's enough time to really, you know, understand the companies and the challenges that they're facing and, and certainly enough time to sort of realize whether the solutions and things we're trying to do, you know, really effectively work and provide value. So, you know, I, I like to think, um, you know, that I've got a fairly, you know, broad and fairly unique view of, of the industry. And it certainly doesn't, you know, the uniqueness does not make it the most valuable view. But, um, but I do think I've got a, a fairly unique view of the industry in terms of touching so many functions, so many com- companies, um, and then so many different scales. That's quite interesting, Nick. How did your journey in, in this industry, in localization industry, start? Uh, tell me, was it an accident or is it something that was Yeah, it's a weird thing, Sultan. I don't know what your story is, but it's a weird thing. That I, a lot of people I've spoken to, it's sort of accidental. Um, right. You know, you know, when I was, you know, I, I always have this sort of thing, like nobody when they're sort of like, you know, the proverbial stereotypical sort of six-year-old boy sort of says like, oh, I really want to get into the language industry when I'm older. <laughs> um, and so, um, you, you know, ultimately I was a project manager um, and that's, you know, I'd sort of done a little bit, you know, I'd, I was honestly relatively fresh out of college. I'd done a couple of years in project management and um, I was looking for a project manager job um, and one became available in a, in a small local company called SDL. Um, and at that time they were a pretty small local company um, and I just went there for a project management job and I didn't really know much about language. Um, I didn't really know, you know, there was a, there was a whole industry. Um, but, but like many of us, it's, it's been a very compelling industry. So I got into it by accident, but 25 years later, you can't say, I can't really claim to have stayed in it by accident. <laughs> Um, at, this, at this point, it's, it's turned into a plan and a strategy. So, so let's talk about that, Nick. Uh, tell me about what you have observed over the years that stood out for you in this industry. Yeah, I, 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 as you say, like a, a number of different things, you know, ultimately, you know, given the longevity um, within the uh, industry. But like, I, I think one thing that's overriding, um, which, you know, I, I guess it's the English in me, ultimately, it feels like a bit of a negative <laughs> uh, reflection, but it's, we're, we're an undervalued industry. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's just about what we do or the individuals in it or anything like that. But I think as an industry, um, we haven't captured the full value of what we do. Um, 
And, and you know, I think it's a good opportunity for us to perhaps dig into some of that later. But it's, but I think that's one thing, you know, it's, it's an industry of remarkable people, of capable people, of people with, you know, unique insights and industrial awareness and understanding. Um, it's an industry of multi-skilled, uh, you know, deeply experienced resources where they have to have linguistic degrees, you know, and, you know, broad industry knowledge. Um, so, you know, it's a it's a fascinating industry, right? So, so there, there are a lot of things that really stuck out to me in a very positive sense. But, but one of my overwhelming things is that it's an industry where we fail to truly capture the value that all of those other awesome things should have yielded. So let's talk about uh, about that, about the value, what we do as translation companies. Our conversation will revolve around the topic of creating value in our companies. Please break down what a translation company does and how does it benefit clients? Yeah, and I, and I think it's interesting, right, at an industrial level. Like a language company, when, when you think about a typical LSP, an LSP is an equivalency to a logistics company. So it's, it's not so much we provide a product, we get a product from A to B, we deliver a product. Um, you know, as you have awareness, right, most of the large scale LSPs have very, very limited internal linguistic capacity, right? Whether it's translation um, or interpretation, um, we, you know, in terms of our employees, we have very relatively little actual, you know, production uh, capacity in terms of the raw product, the translation. So, so effectively, what it means is we're a, a logistics company. Um, but I think often when we look to, you know, develop our value, we, we look back to the product. And so, you know, I liken it to like, let's say we were, a, 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 you know, we were, a, we were a logistics company in, you know, a metals commodity market, right? You know, we may deliver gold or we may deliver tin, but we start to attribute our value to that gold and to that tin. But, but we're really the, the delivery mechanism for that gold and that tin. And our value has to come from that delivery mechanism, not from the innate product itself. As they say, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I think value is similar, it's perceived by clients. What do customers perceive about the type of value that language companies deliver to them? Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, this is an industrial issue. On the customer side, they have a similar issue where they, they, they perceive the value of the product that is delivered and they sort of get confused or there can be confusion between partner and client um, in terms of what, you know, what the actual you know what the product that's being valued is so so we give french and it's somebody might come back to us and say uh oh, your french manufacturing controls translation sucks but effectively we delivered a manufacturing controls translation but it's not ours you know we delivered it from a source from a professional who provided that product and so you know when customers and you sort of think about okay when a customer looks at an lsp or a language provider they actually are looking both Sometimes you are a logistical provider. So are you on time? Are you efficient? Um, are you highly communicative? And then other times they might look and sort of say, you know, but did you deliver gold or did you deliver tin? Right. And they're looking at the actual product and they'll judge you by the nature of the product that you delivered. Now, as, as we sort of de-weed, you know, I always think about problems and industrial scale problems as like a knot, you know, like a knotted piece of string. And if you just start yanking on any piece of a string, it doesn't become unknotted, it gets more knotted. Um, and so when we think about this value prop, the concept of this overlapping perception of value between you know, the actual product, the translated word, and the logistical delivery of that product, I think that's part of why we, we get into trouble in terms of perceived value and like whether or not they understand and, and sort of really see the value that we deliver. But if we clarify those roles and clarify that responsibility, and then we focus on our ability to drive value through the, you know, through a logistical supply chain uh, view of what an LSP does, I, I think we can make tremendous progress. And, and actually, I think that also then helps provide clarity around the actual producer of the product, the linguist and the interpreter, so that they can also provide value. So I think if we really want to get rid of this knot, we've got to pull out those strings a little bit. And we've got to have the concept between um, what is a uh, a the delivery of the product and what is the logistics of delivery of the product, and then that allows us to create much clearer value statements.
So on that note, uh, I mean, there's this debate about whether we create value or we transform it. Uh, my good friend Renato Benenato, he's an industry pundit. Uh, he knows everything that happens in this industry. And he wrote a book on how translation companies operate. He insists that we are in the business of value transformation because we don't create anything. We only take the created content and transform it. I'm interested to hear from you, Nick, about how do we create value? What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, and it's, it's interesting. I know Renato pretty well, um, and, and you know he, he's got an extremely valid view on the industry. But I actually think when he talks about the, this concept of transformation, in many ways he's doing a very similar thing where he's he's conflating like both of these issues or putting both of these issues together because we're not trying to convert the value of tin, right, the actual core product or the value of gold, the actual product from the linguist over to some other value for a customer, you know, because that that creates this confusion where what we're trying to do is actually develop value for what it is we really do deliver. Because I, I see, you know, if, if I sort of give, you know, Tim, you know, let, let's say somebody really wants a basic level translation. It's very valuable, right? If I want cans, I want them made of tin, like it's the right material. And if I deliver tin, that I tried to turn that tin into, you know, transform it into gold and be like, oh, this is the best translation ever. And this is such an insightful translation. And it's such an in-depth. If that's a basic commodity translation, like a user guide, I don't want the same linguistic skill that I might need in a movie, right? And so, 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 so when I'm creating value, it's not about me transforming tin to gold, taking something from a linguist and, and upscaling the value of that thing. For me, for for, for, for for LSP, I've got to make sure that I'm delivering the right quality product to the right business solution and then developing value in that business solution. So I don't so see transformation. I feel like we're not alchemists. We can't turn something into something else. Um, I think our the way for us to develop value is by outcome security. Like we can make sure that the intended purpose and application of the product we deliver is actually achieved so that absolutely you know yeah so when i work with a client what we're trying to do is what are you really trying to achieve here what is it you're really trying to do and then we make sure we're mapping that right skill to that right outcome and and the better we do that the better we drive value for us because we become more valuable and the better we also drive value for the linguist the highly trained linguist because they're getting the full value out of the work that they do so if I understand you correctly, uh, and, and you show outcomes to clients, for example, in case of ULG under your you know leadership, uh, you can show to a client that if you localize an e-learning course, the value is that now you have a much larger audience outside an English speaking market. Is that what I'm trying to, uh, what you're trying to communicate here? Yeah, 100%, because effectively, like we sort of think, okay, we're going to like push towards this outcome thing. The, the, and I say, okay, I want a translated course, right? Then that course goes out and somebody comes back and says, that's a rubbish course. If my primary view as an LSP is that I'm providing translation of a course, the issue is I'm going to get you better translation to overcome the idea that you didn't like that course. But, but now I'm trying to turn tin into gold, right? And in this case, actually, course translation is more like gold, right? It's, or silver, at least, right? It's, it's a high-quality endeavor. So here, there, there is a value to that, right? So, so, but, 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 the, but what I've got to do is not so much translate that course. That's not what makes a course successful. What makes a course successful is, is it engaging and does it drive learning outcomes? So at the end of the course, the learner knows what the learner was supp supposed to uh, retain from the course content. So now if I shift my view and sort of say, okay, I'm about logistically supplying you with the right outcome. I'm about getting the product, the right product for you to get to the right outcome. Now what I want to do is convert that conversation around the translation of a course as if that was going to get me the right outcome to the engagement of the course. So I want to ask a question like, hey, is this course engaging to begin with? Hey, is this method of learning the appropriate learning method for that target market? Because then once I start to you know, talk about what is the right learning method for the target market and the right engagement method for the target market, I can then go to the linguist and connect them much more closely to a course that's likely to be successful. And if that course is successful, it has value. Right? If that course is not successful, it doesn't have value. And I'm going to keep trying to get a different translator. But if that course is successful and is driving value because it's achieving engagement, a meaningful retention of that data, 
um, to the to the the end target audience, then everybody wants that course to be successful, and I'm more likely to pay a higher price and invest greater in training and support of that linguistic resource to get that engagement outcome because it is what I'm trying to achieve with the course. I think it's it's difficult to define the value of any service, and and we are in a knowledge service industry, so. Uh, have you found basically uh, a way to clearly communicate that using outcomes? Of course, I mean, is there a formula? Because even the way we, you and I, we're talking, it's we, I find it difficult that you, you and I are communicating about value. Yep, absolutely. So, like, what we look for is is there's sort of like a five-step process, right? We we refer it to like a language solutions maturity model, and that's what we try to you know follow with our customers. So, first of all, it's like a basic map of services, right? And that's a little bit more about what we talk about when we talk about service delivery, right? So, first of all, is like, are we getting it to you on time, and is it getting to you in a fashion that you need it to fulfill the needs of of let's say this this theoretical e-learning course, right? So that's just about like, are you getting fast enough? Are you getting on time? Are we communicating well enough, right? It's, it's basically mapping your course to make sure that the delivery is is working in the way that the, the customer and the end user would need. Then we start to think about, okay, how do we integrate technology? But that's really about making it seamlessly. Then we start to get into this outcome thing. And we say, okay, what is the actual outcome? What are the, the right mechanisms for outcomes? So if we talk about a course, we start to say, okay, like, do we have the availability to get course completion rates and course engagement statistics? And then rather than like, let's say, translation quality statistics, can you share with us the, you know, the amount of engagement that was generated from the course, how many people took it, how long did they spend within the course, and then how many people completed that course and went on to complete other courses? So now we start to move the performance as from an LSP provider, our discussions start coming, hey, is this course performing against the outcome? So when they come back and say, mm, you know what, people aren't spending it long enough on this course. We say, well, let's look at the content within the translated course and make that sure that that content within the translated course is compelling. If we say, if we don't make that connection to the engagement, then the dialogue comes oh, people didn't like the course, the translation quality is rubbish, give us better translation quality. But but you know as well as I do, better translation quality is highly subjective. No one's talking about spelling mistakes, we're talking about voice tone and style, right? And so that's highly subjective. So when we start to work on this model of move to outcome, yes, there's a basic mapping of service. Yes, you should look to integrate technology like MT or AI or you know whatever, you know, API connectivity. But then you've got to start to discuss with your clients and target market, you know, what is the intended outcome and start to build KPIs around that outcome and then move your discussions for like, are we getting the intended outcome from our piece of material? And then if not, we'll do a repetitive feedback loop to get you that outcome. So we pulled out some videos in this courseware. Did that improve engagement and retention? Um, we added some videos to this courseware. Did that improve engagement and intention? But all the time we're keeping the conversation not in translation quality, but engagement and retention. And that's because in this example, that is the outcome KPI. And that's actually a very interesting point you just raised, uh, Nick, because from the sounds of it, if we can demonstrate uh, how our um, the, the value that we create uh, helps with the bottom line of our client's uh, business, then they will see the value. For example, if we can tell them that because of the translation, your churn rate for, for your clients and your telecom company you know, dropped by this percent, I think that's how we demonstrate it. But uh, talking about value and how we demonstrate it to our clients, I know you touched upon this, but the role of a translation company in the content value chain has evolved significantly over the past few years and in many ways, including becoming an abstract plugin for MT engines. People basically see us as a data pipe for multilingual content um, or to getting highly involved with marketing content and so on. How do you suggest, Nick, we demonstrate that value, the changing value to our clients? Yeah, I think in many ways, like the way we can do it is by showing, you know, and it is it's, it's picking up, right? It is our, our, you know, focus within market, but it's picking up the 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 out the outcome dialogue, right? And so, you know, if we start to think about, you know, where we use MT, we used MT to eliminate, you know, translation of the low value, where it was bulk translation that nobody was really paying a lot of attention with, and the client didn't really want to spend a bunch of time on it, and so. 
we empty that content so that then, you know, they don't need to, you know, the cost for them is significantly lower. Now, that does take words out of the industry. And so somebody could be like, well, hold on a minute. Like now there's, you know, there's not 100,000 words for me to translate. But the problem was that translator couldn't yield the value from that content. Now, if the customer can translate those words much, much cheaper, then they can take the money that they were sort of effectively wasting, right? And the effort that they were paying for, which was effectively wasted to put a high quality resource on a low value piece of content. And they can start to then focus that money and those resource time um, into high value content, right? So I can start to say like, okay, instead of me worrying about the cost of translation, maybe I can sort of work out what is the actual usage and demand of content demand in that country. So maybe I take that highly trained linguist and start to focus them purely on high value content. But when I can't get the low value content translated and I end up using a translator on low value content, it becomes highly frustrating because the linguist is frustrated you won't pay more. The client is frustrated they're paying as much as they are. But the reason is it's a high value resource on low value content. And MT and this sort of tradition, this, this move to what's the actual outcome, what are you actually trying to achieve, allows you to start filtering the right type of resource to the right type of, of work. Now, in another example, we had medical claims. We started to use AI and NMT to filter the medical claims uh, uh, function. So what was previously all translation, it was 127 bucks to translate the average medical claim because of the size and number of words, right? Just standard translation work. This many words, this many pages, this cost. The problem was that it was that thing where it's just like they needed it cheaper and they needed it faster. And for the majority of it, nobody was reading it to be like, hey, was this really a well-translated medical claim? Conversely, some of the medical claims needed more in-depth medical understanding to really extract the right types of terms and the right type of phrases so that those people got paid for their claims. But what they were doing was running everything through translation. It was costing a fortune. So then they started to be like, okay, like we've got to pull back the amount of translation we do. Then claims started to back up. Then their what's called CMS ratings or medical support ratings, you know, started to get um, impacted because they just weren't processing enough claims. When we stuck, stepped back and said, okay, what's the actual outcome? What are you trying to do? And they're like, well, we're trying to process as many claims and get CMS ratings and then support members in the best way possible we realized that we didn't need to human translate a vast majority of that content. We could auto-prop a bunch of the content through NMT, use AI to look for these claims that were higher value and higher complexity, and then route those higher value and complexity claims to a linguist that they were willing to pay for because they were only working on a significantly reduced volume of claims. So now I have a translator that's getting paid effectively for high value work, on high value content that yields a result the customer's happy with. And I have an AI NMT deployment that is, you know, providing a cost effective solution for what is effectively data extraction that we didn't we didn't really ever need to translate. And so it, it, it's a mechanism that allows us to, you know, by focusing on what is the net outcome, we can get the right resources to the right type of project and then once you've got the right resources on the right project, everybody can extract value. Uh, Nick, I have asked this question before from people who have been on this podcast, but I'm going to ask you as well, what problem are we actually solving with translation? The people whose problems are solved, do they even realize or know and acknowledge the type of uh, the type and amount of effort that goes on behind the scenes? For example, we deploy translators, uh, editors, uh, there's like engineers who deal with all types of different, uh, you know, formatting issues and so forth. D does that get noticed? Because all of that is obviously goes into creating value. Yeah. And, the, and the, 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 the challenging factor, and I say this on a very, very personal level, because like I've been in this industry for a very long time um, and I've done a number of these the different functions. The sad fact is it's not you know, just as a customer understand the value. It's like we we as an industry have wasted a tremendous amount of effort. And, and it's, 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 it's really, you know, a challenging fact for me. You know, I, I've spent a lot of my life wasting a tremendous amount of effort because I'm trying to uphold this high value, you know, high value resource, low value outcome. 
And, and the answer is no, they don't. The customer does not understand, nor will they ever understand the amount of effort that goes into producing it. Because even if they did understand it, there is no, that effort is effectively wasted because it's a high value production on a low value piece of content. And what, what we as an industry have to do, especially now, I think what's really unlocked this opportunity is, is the NMT stuff, is we've got to start to work out more intelligently. Let's separate out the value. Right? Because if you, if a customer has doubts about what it takes and the quality of work that's going into it, it's a very good sign that you're working on something that is a lower end value statement. Like you go and ask somebody like, hey, you know, do we really appreciate that translator that translated our marketing materials and helped us expand our market? They appreciate the value and they will pay for it. They pay higher rates and they're more grateful for it. If you say, hey, you know, do you really appreciate this person we got to translate a, a thing on SlaterCon a couple of days ago or yesterday? Um, you know, Deluxe Entertainment, they translate movies. They appreciate the value. They get paid for it. So if you find the outcome and you link the right resource to it, we, we can all stop wasting this effort and, and putting all this tremendous high quality work into this ultimately low value output. And we can start to align people to tasks um, and roles and deliverables that make a much bigger difference to their customers. And in turn, the customers are willing to pay a, you know, the right rate for those type of services. So Nick, speaking of, of uh, demonstrating value, again, language companies, uh, you know, they've become critical for so many industries and businesses today, whether they want to sell globally or train their international staff. How do they decide, I mean, the clients, which translation vendor delivers more or better value to them beyond reducing their costs? Because in some cases, cost is not their number one priority. Yeah, no, for sure. And cost is, is double-folded. Like the biggest cost savings I've ever achieved are through strategic partnerships. Like it's, you know, like this concept that you reduce cost by getting two cents off is really like, it's that, all that is, is like a 101 centralized procurement strategy. Like it's, it's you know, like a big company knows if they get their thumb screws out and goes to a small vendor and say, give us a discount, that vendor especially if there's no communication within the industry, we'll give them a two cent discount. But you never save money in that way. Like It's like it's a tiny proportion of the overall savings. And you, you know as well as I do, vendors get very good at countermanding that by putting in extra lines in a PO or extra service rates or reducing the, you know, the throughput volumes. Like it's, it's a net sum game and, it, and it's literally just a 101 procurement game. Like, you know, we'll get people come to us and they're like, you got to drop our rates. We've got to a point of maturity with outcomes where we're like, no, like just no. Like we're not going to have the discussion and we're not going to go through it because we are highly confident of the strategic reduction in long-term costs that we create by partnering with you on intelligent solutions to your problem. And so, you know, effectively, you know, when, when we think about, you know, how they decide their value, their vendors. It's not the 101 procurement thing. Like that's just a trick that they use. And because we we are not a communicative, um, a communicative marketplace, and we're not a mature marketplace, the 101 vendor thumbscrew works really well. So everybody should just stop playing 101 vendor thumbscrew games with the large-scale entities. Get a little bit more confident about the value they actually drive. Get a little bit better about the way that they position and re relate that value back, and and that problem will go. Now, you're still going to be left with who do they pick and why do they pick people, but they pick re people you know, within large-scale global enterprises for the same reason you pick people when you decide any vendor that you work with. They want vendors that truly understand what they're trying to achieve, truly partner with them to achieve that goal, and can show measurable results to the delivery of that goal. Now, to put it in context, we work with a vendor right now. They get their thumb screws out, give us two cents off a word, and we're like, no, you're not getting a discount. That same vendor, we've worked with the actual people that do production to save them hundreds of thousands of dollars a year um, through intelligent um, deployment of the right resources on the right content. Now, that vendor, you know, procurement comes online and they're like, oh, we're going to kick you out because we've got 30,000 vendors to choose from. And like, oh, you know, I, I'd be worried about you if I was you guys. And, you know, yeah, they might want to use you, but like you, you don't understand, like we control it. And it's literally 101 procurement strategy from a large global entity. The actual person that makes that decision is the person that you've built it. You've built a trusted supplier relationship with. And that person has the power to override central procurement, and they do.
So, you know, if you want to drive value, you know, with your with your with your customers, provide meaningful solutions connected to their outcome, and then trust that that meaningful solution connected to their outcome will actually protect and allow you to grow within that client. And then when procurement turns up, if you're dealing with a global scale enterprise where a lot of our customers are, and they turn up with their thumb screws, you've got to be more mature. If, if a global procurement agency says to me, like, I'll give you $5 million worth of more business, I'll give them a discount. But if they're not going to give me any more, when I take that discount and I fall for, for, for you know baseline error, it's not a lack of value. That's an entirely separate conversation. I'm, I'm, it's a lack of experience dealing with global entities. And what I do in accepting that discount is condemn the whole rest of the industry to a price war. Absolutely. So while we're still talking about prices and costs, uh, Nick, in terms of value, um, we are at a time in in in, in history where uh, things are changing. I mean, both uh, geopolitically and economically as well. If you look, inflation is everywhere. But in our industry, it's expected that prices should drop. I don't know why. Do you think it is a time as an industry we can go to um, a client industries and and demonstrate that the costs are going up maybe we can increase our prices somehow because now that's expected and accepted in so many different ways yep for sure and um, i i've pitched to you know a couple of other ceos that we should create a visible commodity index where we just sort of say like look you know at the end of the day you know there is a known price for a professional quality product like there's a known price because like the interesting thing is actually from a ceo of an lsp is I'm constantly told that all the other LSPs undercut pricing. But I've worked at enough LSPs to know that when I was at Lionbridge, SDL undercut pricing. When I went to Lion, uh, when I went to SDL, um, I was told that like, you know, I'm, I'm TransPerfect undercut pricing. And, and the problem is, it's just a lack of experience in the industrial level and a lack of visibility in the industrial level in terms of what's actually happening in the marketplace. I believe we should create clear visibility to the average commodity price, just like there is in the gold market. You know what an ounce of gold costs. Everybody knows what an ounce of gold costs. You can sell it for whatever you like. You know what the baseline market cost is. And that would limit this, this scale of lack of experience uh, uh, competition in a highly fragmented market because then everybody would have a baseline to go off. And then if somebody comes and sort of says, like, okay, well, I'm going to sell you this bar of gold for half of the price of the going rate, everybody could be like, like ask yourself, are you going to get the same product? like half the price. So, so, so I think we should, we should get a commodity index. I think it would help a lot. We should get all of the core services of language. We should publish out, you know, costs. I'd be happy to work with a NIMSI um, or a Slate or someone like that, you know, give our prices in to them so they can see all of our price lists. They can create the standard price list and they can publish it once a year, once every six months so that everybody knows this is baseline cost. Returning then, you know, using that as a vehicle to return to your initial question is as an industry, we absolutely can go back to customers and say, hey, we got to put our costs up. Inflation is a very real thing. The quality of service that we drive is a very real thing. Um, we should put our costs up. Now, to return to my analogy of, of, of value, the problem is if I'm using a high quality resource for a low quality or a low value piece of content, and then I say I'm going to put that, that cost up, from a business perspective, I'm literally going to say no, because the, the content has, doesn't uh, align to the value of the resources doing it. So let's say I have a gold can, right? You know, like a can where you put fruit in or you put food in, a, you know, like a can of beans. And instead of making that can out of beans, I make it out of gold. You might like a gold can of beans. You're like, wow, that's kind of fancy. Like gold can of beans, that's really great, right? And then I say, you know what? I'm going to charge you 10 bucks for that instead of 50 cents. You're going to be like, no. So you can only put value up where you have value. So I think a primary step here, when we think about you know, language solutions maturity, you must establish value by applying the right type of resource to the right type of problem. Once you do that, the concept that you would then go back to that thing that drives value and say, this is costing more, we absolutely should do it. But absolutely, we should be growing and expanding the opportunity of our market. Like Accenture, doesn't think about saying that their people are more valuable. Lawyers don't think like, oh, I've got to cut the price of my legal staff again this year. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous state. So, you know, we do. We're happy to go back to customers. But, but, but there's got to be 
there's, you can only go back to the customer where you're driving value. And what I think a lot of the industry, we haven't really secured that we've driven value. And then when you ask for more money for something that doesn't have value, the answer is going to be no. So you, you've got to get value first by aligning to outcomes, then you can ask for more money. That is a very wise, uh, wise way of presenting it. And I, I'm really like we're on the same page. This podcast is made possible with sponsorship from Hybrid Links, a human in the loop provider of translation and data collection services for healthcare, education, legal, and government sectors. Visit hybridlinks.com to learn more. Nick, you mentioned that when you were in different LSPs, they all had similar fears and so forth, but let's compare them. If you go through the websites of, let's say, 100 translation companies of all sizes, almost 90% of them or 90 of out of 100 will say the same thing on their websites. They try to justify selling quality as a value. I want to know what's wrong with that. How can we differentiate our value creation and delivery from each other to create that the distinction when we make up the translation of, uh, you know, the translation companies, they are so homogeneous when their makeup is so homogeneous. Yeah, because I, I think, you know, and, and it's tricky, right? Because we, we, and it's reasonable, right? We talk around the same point and the problem is I'm, I'm conscious I always return back to my anchor, right, to my core point. But effectively, you know, what when you go to LSP websites, you should talk about the solution and the problem that they solve for their customer. So, you know, we talk about, you know, we reduce, you know, the the the, the we increase the speed of medical claim turnarounds, right? We increase the amount of medical claims that could be processed within the same budgetary figure, right? And not by eliminating valuable linguists but by making sure we were using linguist in the right place and machine translation in the right place. And so, you know, we should, as an industry, right, we should be going to each other's websites and we should be doing more and more and more to publish what was the actual solution and the actual end result that you achieved with that client, right? So so we helped to get 23% greater um, adoption um, and completion rates for health risk assessment surveys within a target market in New York, I'm an LA. So, you know, it, it's, it's not we provide a translation quality. It's like we got 23% more people to complete health risk assessments, which increased the visibility and understanding of health risk for targeted disparity markets. And the more we as an industry can talk about the outcome that we created, you know, the more people could start to look at us as vendors and sort of work out, okay, what's really the right vendor to work with? Because you want to align something that seems to be able to create the type of outcomes that you're trying to achieve. Right. If I want to engage an audience, who can help me engage an audience? If I want to just, you know, produce, you know, four million words of translated text, who can who can help me produce mass volume of text at a very cost-effective price? You know, what's my goal? And then I go to the websites and try to work out, okay, who could really help me get to my goal? Right. Nick, I, I think definition of value starts at the top, as you just mentioned, it starts with the leadership. How should language company leadership define value and their vision and, and mission statements? It's interesting, actually. So so for, for me, there's a there's a break in the line of questioning, if you like. And it's um, when, when I think about how do I define value for my company, right, that there is a concept of how do you divide value in the marketplace. And we do go to the marketplace and sort of say, like, you know, is it for us? It's about outcomes. Like we work very hard with you, with our customers to work out what they're really trying to achieve. And then we will remap, redevelop, reintegrate anything we have to to achieve that outcome. So so we're like, we're going to come to it and then we're going to have to work out, okay, what are you really trying to achieve here? And then we will remap and rework out the right type of services to achieve that goal. Um, and so, you know, that's how we push value. What triggers to me from the question is when I think about how do I, push value from a company perspective, you know, what companies should be doing to push value is, is recognizing their people. Every single dollar of every single company's value comes from their people. And as a company, if you're if you're focused on delivering value from, you know, as, as a company to your, you know, what do I do for ULG, is our value comes from our people. You know, when we, when we externalize it, we talk about outcomes, but those outcomes are only possible based on the quality and support and empowerment of our people. And so when, when I think about, you know, value in ULG and what, what is valuable to ULG is, is our people. And I, you know, and I live, breathe and eat, you know, tr- trying to reflect the value of our people. I think, 
you know, I think that's where all value comes from. So e- equally important, Nick, is communicating the importance of value to all the people, because at the end of the day, in the organization is formed uh, from people, as you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. How should staff across different departments learn about the value that they collectively create or uh, transform, for lack of a better term? Yeah, and there are two elements. Like, so for us, like one, one is like you connect them to the outcome too, right? So like when we increase health risk assessment um, adoption, and then that has a meaningful impact on reducing disparity, that is a very motivating you know, component, right? You, you can probably see it. It's easier to touch, right? Because I've improved health outcomes of a target underserviced, you know, inequitable healthcare market, right? And, and that's made people healthier and that's made people better and they get better quality outcomes. So we connect our teams, you know, in our LinkedIn posts or our internal messaging, you know, to those outcomes because it's very tangible. It shows what the worth is. But I would also say that when we improve, you know, workflow, you know, automation or we, you know, intelligently apply machine translation and they can see that they've driven, you know, an average cost of word from 22 cents down to, you know, a customer. They find very high degree of value in that because the value of what they did and the work they did is clearly expressed in terms of the outcome that it achieved for the client. So it's easy emotionally to see the human um, impact of healthcare, but, but, but on a professional level, I think many people are just committed to the idea that what they do is worthwhile and achieves useful results. And I think companies often, you know, forget that part to like try to draw those links to what was actually achieved and they don't publish it because, you know, they're on to the next project. Um, but I think, you know, like one is reflecting that to people to make it clear that what they do produces what outcome um, and then giving them visibility to the outcome so there is a closure loop. Um, and it was something we had pain with. Like, we weren't doing it either. So I don't want to be like, we were perfect. We're not. Um, but, but it's something we've worked on to close that loop so people can understand what was the outcome of their projects. And I think that that, that helps drive their you know value to them. Um, and then from a linguistic point of view, when you use a linguist, which is a highly trained, highly experienced, deeply knowledgeable resource, and you put them on a project that you haven't provided clarity with the customer what's really needed, you as an LSP allow frustration to exist between the two of them because the customer wants cheap and fast, the linguist wants to do a professional job and you haven't bridged the two. So we should be able to go and some jobs are, this is a quick quick and fast job. This is all about volume. So if you want a bunch of volume and you want to just push through a bunch of volume you know, using TM and NRT tools, this is a great job for you. And if that's what you're trying to achieve as a linguist, this is a good fit for you. This is a job where your skills and understanding in control valves or your experience and understanding in medical processes is going to be valuable, then this is a job for you. And that empowers the individual linguist or interpreter to take work that is reflective of what they want to achieve. And I think as long as as an LSP, we can provide clarity in terms of, you know, what it is the customer wants. So therefore, what type of skills are needed to achieve that end result. I think people drive value from achieving, you know, a goal that is clearly set. So, Nick, while we're still talking about value within the organization, how does a company that's so focused on delivering value, but I would like to hear from you, how would they quantify and measure that value? Because it's not just quality or a metrics of quality of how great the translation was. How do they improve on, on delivering value? First of all, you have to measure it and then improve it. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and to, the, to the discussion earlier, it's like it's got to be, you know, that's the state, state you know, what we refer to as step four of our of our you know, language solutions maturity is you, you've got to align the, the quality of translation. And, and, you know, as we've moved to this outcome thing, hardly anybody has quality of translation as an outcome. Like I, I have yet to experience that. Don't get me wrong, right? In medical claims, you have to have 99.5% or higher from a regulatory requirement point of view um, quality. When you do e-learning courses, you know, everybody expects at least 90%, 95% quality. I mean, it's like, nine, if you ask me, 98% quality is an industry average in terms of expectation and, you know, percentage of failure. They want 98% error-free, um, 98% error-free, right? So, so but, but none of those define value. Like, none of those are attributed or connected to value. Nobody gets higher value when you're 97% versus 98%. Nobody gets higher value when you're 98 to 99. Um, even if you were like 80, it would, probably would not 
um, communicate into value. Um, and so, you know, when, when you're looking to sort of create value, the concept of a quality metric to create value is not is a non-star. I've never seen it. KPIs that drive value are, you know, member, uh, member uh, retention, member engagement, member attraction. So how many you know, members of the healthcare person actually get into the door? Um, it is uh, learning engagement, learning completion rates, learning retention. Um, it is SEO performance. Um, it is market expansion. It is number of you know, downloads or clicks. They are KPIs that drive value. Translation quality, I've never seen an example where translation quality drives value. Is a given requirement of the industry. And, and a proxy is a bit like milk. You know, you, you get milk, like, you know, either from, you know, Gary's farm, you know, in a glass bottle or, you know, from Alpenrose, you know, in a plastic uh, box. There's just an expectation of value, like, or, or quality. You expect that milk to be okay. And it's only when the milk is sour or the translation is bad do you, you know, do you actually make a comment on it? It's it's important for me to know how do you map the the outcomes based value that you're defining to your client to your internal KPIs. For example, uh, like uh, you know, our project managers should improve doing this thing in order to improve the value we are delivering to our clients. And it's program specific, so I mean, but it's but it is linearly. It's linearly tied to what you agree with the client. So I mean, if you want, right? So, so you know, I, I'm a bit nervous about it because like it's like live, and I, you know, it's just me trying to work it out on the spot. Normally, this takes a lot of time in some meetings. But like, you know, if you if you give me an example of a service you deliver, I will try to sort of give you a view of what might be a KPI for it. So, can you think of a service that you deliver? You're like, okay, we delivered this service. If, for example, let's say we are delivering translation services for refugees for a very specific rare or hard to find language that we have been able to kind of create a framework around that. But uh, I know that uh, the outcome is obviously improving people's lives by making sure that they get their documents translated quickly or something like of that nature, right? So how would that, how would I actually take that outcome and create a KPI for my project managers for that matter? Yeah, so you would, you know, if again, right, it's live, right? But in my head, it would be something like, so your actual net outcome, right, is a rare language refugee, you know, being able to um, effectively navigate a new community. Right. Right. So, so, you know, that it would be something like that. So then what you would want to be able to do is say, like, OK, in order for us to effectively drive value with this environment, we've got to have accessibility to the KPI metric of effective you know, navigation within things. So can you survey these members? Um, you know, and you say that to your client, like, are, are we able to survey these members and, and get a qualitative rating back from them? that were they able to navigate the documentation required? to work within society. And so do they believe that as they try to integrate, you know, um, into their new society, that the documentation was a limiter to their um, integration ability? So then you would sort of say, like, okay, so give us that data, because if you if you want to drive value run provide translation, but you actually want to drive value, then you've got to hold the line and say, look, we need to know this data to know that the work we do and supply to you is really driving a meaningful outcome. Because there's a whole bunch of things involved in that, and there's culture, and there's awareness of content. And what we want the conversation to be back is like, for some reason, that person failed to believe that the documentation supplied help them integrate into a community because then you can have a conversation with them is like okay well, what would it take you know maybe we need more documents maybe we need different documents right but you're having a different discussion than what was the translation quality of document x because the translation quality of document x is unlikely to be the reason that refugee does not integrate into society so you say what's the kpi of success they say integration into society you say okay like, let's have a look at it and then if they see that the integration in society starts to fall, you have the grounds to have a much more holistic discussion with them in terms of, okay, what would it take? You know, okay, we could try to translate that document a different way and see if that integration to society goes better. Or we could take a look at the documents that are being provided and see, are there any gaps? Because maybe there are documents they're missing. So maybe we need to add some documents in. Or maybe um, it turns out that there is a cultural bias to those documents. And so maybe we need to rewrite those documents rather than just get them to fill them out. Um, but all of those discussions are not your translation into Somali sucks, because that's not what's holding the Somali refugee back. 
Right. And as, as we discussed Nick, earlier, every translation company delivers uh, translation. Now, the company that can demonstrate the value to its clients, I mean, uh, obviously should be able to receive a better reward. But in the real world, is that the case or there are companies that are basically relying on translation provider blindly and all they need is, you know, to, to fill a form that says oh, a checklist saying, you know, the translation is completed? Yeah, honestly, I'm saying no. Like, I think most LSPs, you know, and I, I speak from an LSP, right? So, I'm innately biased, but my experience has been LSPs are populated by project managers, and and I I honestly do I know very very few. I honestly I don't know any. Like I literally don't know any. I'm not talking about just at ULG. I mean at Lionbridge, at SDL. I don't I don't know any project manager that actually doesn't care about the linguists. Like I, I just don't. And I'm sure linguists feel that way because they're stuck in this thing between you know they're providing a high value service. The LSP is, you know, fulfilling a low value demand and um, there's a rub. The customers want it cheaper, the translators want it higher, and there's a rub because basically we're being forced into this negotiation trade-off. But it's because we're using high quality resources for low quality output, low value content. So but I've never seen a project manager that isn't extremely sympathetic. I'll tell you, as an owner of an LSP, I'll put pressure on my project management teams to be like, we got to find cheaper resources. We got to drive efficiency within our business. And they don't. Like, you know, that is not their primary delivery. They want a good quality translation. Um, and they understand and respect the, the challenge of it. So I, I, I personally, I'm sure there must be because we've got 30,000 LSPs out there, but it's um, I, I've never seen an LSP either, you know, certainly not United Language Group, but, but honestly, none of the others that I've been at where they don't care about it. The, the issue is they know it sucks and they know the customers don't see the value in the product. But the issue is that the value in the product is not just not seen, it's not there. Because we're providing a high quality translation for something that drives very low value back to the customer. When you provide high value back to a customer, they see the value of the service. So um, uh, what we are still talking about that, my next question to you, Nick, is do you see a misalignment between the value that some companies provide and what the customers actually need? Yeah, all the time, all the time. Like we focus, when you look at our standard maturity model, it's about service maturity. So we think, right, you know, like, like, and let's go back to my tin can analogy, right? Like right. a tin can is made out of tin for a variety of reasons, right? But part of that is because it's a cost-effective, well-balanced solution to what a tin needs to be made out of. So, you know, what we do all the time is they're like, oh, we're going to like wheel that tin transformationally into gold. And then suddenly someone's going to be super willing to pay for this gold tin can. But, but you, we're not alchemists. You cannot pull that trick off. So... So the problem is everybody's left with frustration. But I think LSPs do carry a significant burden of responsibility because we are the ones that have created this, this view that maybe I can give you a gold tin can for the price of a tin can. And we should be much clearer about the actual value we were driving so that we could have clarified the conversation. Um, and so instead of getting you know stuck in this argument about why are we getting gold tin cans, you know, or this high value resource being used on this effectively low value content you know we should have separated that conversation earlier and sort of realized no like there's you know we, we've got to take the high value resource and put it on high value material and that you know for a good example is you know post editing can be like that because post editing you know takes um you know and i'm not talking about post editing the volume but like you can get a raw translation out of a neural machine translation and then say like, yeah, but we really want a honed message. That honed message could be no cheaper whatsoever. You haven't saved a single dollar, but you use neural machine translation to get you raw so that all of your dollars can be spent on that linguist sitting there and being like, does this really connect to a client? You know, how would I shape this message? How would I shape that message? How would I change that translation? And if that linguist is sitting on that job not any cheaper job, that job and spending all of those hours on creating content that engages, there's value. If that language spends 90% of their time creating content without thinking about how it can engage, there's very little value. So speaking of value, it means different things to different people and, and probably different industries. Government may see value in a different way compared to an e-learning development firm, for example. How can Nick, the, the messaging around value be tailored for that uh, target audience, for a specific audience? Yeah. And then, you know, I, I would correct the question slightly with due respect, right? But it would be how, you know, how can the outcome 
you, you need to define the outcome within that, right? So the government needs rapid response. Um, you know, you know, we work extensively with the government, right? They need rapid response and resolution times, right? They are an efficiency driver. It's, it's honestly not definitively around quality of service, it is around speed and velocity of service because they have loads and loads and loads of people asking very, very, very similar questions. And, and unfortunately, because of that size and scale, they've got to focus on velocity and responsiveness over depth and quality of response. Um, and so then when you want to create value for that, you must create a system and encourage resources to focus on a system that delivers velocity and responsiveness, not depth and knowledge of understanding. So you take something that really truly understands international tax law and you put them on an SSA support line, you're going to create frustration for both resource and customer. Um, so, you know, the way to do it across the different markets is work out what it is those people want to achieve, right? So the government wants to achieve an outcome that's very different to, you know, a standard, you know, e-learning development company. You know, they want to do engagement, right? So they're, they're the polar opposite. They're not trying velocity and responsiveness. You know, the average e-learning thing is about engagement and retention. So, so there, you do need to set up a process and a system that really is focused on engagement. How did you get the maximum possible amount of the linguist time focused on engagement, right? And is this course engaging? Um, is this course accurately going to engage a culturally specific target audience? And so the way you do it, right, is, is, you, is it's not the value, it's the outcome. Right. What what is what's the right outcome for each of those industries? And uh, let's let's zoom in on where we are today. Uh, where do you see the most value being created by language companies, uh, or in, in your words, the outcomes of which industries can we change and improve on in, in this year in 2022? Yeah, I I think it's a good general call, like both because I think financially, honestly, it is viable. Like I, I think it's a good financial opportunity, but it's more than that. Like there's there's a greater value than the financial return. But um, anywhere where you see um, equity opportunity for language in, to link to culture to help resolve those issues. So I, I, I think, you know, when you look at you know, education, there's an equity gap. When you look at legal um, support enforcement, there's an equity gap. When you look at healthcare, there is an equity gap. Um, and I think in, in areas where there are equity gaps, there is a high degree of motivation to resolve that disparity and address that disparity. Um, and produce more reasonable and fair acts of society. That's a very good area to focus on in terms of the value. Understood. So um, as we reach the end of this interview, Nick, uh, please share a few words of advice for language companies that are interested in defining their value proposition better to their clients. Don't be afraid to push your client and to work with your client to really understand what the impact of the work you do is. So they may come to you and sort of say, like, hey, give us some translation. Don't don't be afraid to say, but what are you doing with it? Like, what are you trying to achieve with this translation? Um, and it is daunting because a lot of people are like, ah, you know, who cares about that? Like, I got 50,000 jobs to do. You know, you guys just need to get this done. And, and you know, you need to be professional, right? You need to be polite. And so, you know, there are ways to have that conversation. But, but I know for a fact, the way you have that conversation, you benefit because you align better to the outcome and the outcome creates, but so too does the client benefit. And the client goes from them being an internal service provider where they just do what people are being, you know, asking them to do, to where they're adding value back to their organization because suddenly they're seen as somebody that drives better engagement or better, um, you know, uh, member signups. Um, and, and you're helping them take the same journey. So, so I'd say, you know, just in closing some words, don't, don't be afraid to have the outcome solution and try to push it, right? I'm not saying like annoy your clients, but, but don't be afraid to have that, that discussion and then try to push your clients a little bit to focus in that area. And, and where you achieve it, you will benefit, your supply chain will benefit, and so will your customer. Um, you know, we've had many customers get promoted, you know, to non-language specific senior roles because they, they started to adjust what it was they were doing for their companies. And it went from, I'm providing that translation you asked for, to I'm helping you establish this global market. And so I just, I just think it's an industrial level. It is a well worth the pain of raising it and discussing it with clients. 
That was a quite informative and interesting interview, Nick. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And I think everyone listening today had at least one thing that they learned about creating value, um, especially with demonstrating how outcomes-based uh, support actually creates value or, or transforms it um, for their clients through translation and related language services. So I'm hoping I can speak with you in a future episode on a separate topic of interest for our industry. And uh, with that, I want to thank you for your time and for speaking with me today. Yeah, no, likewise. Thank you, Sultan. Thanks for putting the podcast together and for you know being willing to go through the scheduling challenges and everything that it takes to get the stuff done. But I, I appreciate the effort that you put into the, the process too. So thank you. As you heard, value is an important subject that is often misunderstood or neglected in our industry. Almost every translation company promotes itself as a quality provider, whereas that is probably not the obvious value clients are looking for. Quality is expected regardless. Nick touched upon some very interesting ideas on how we can demonstrate the value to clients that we generate, and the debate about value creation versus value transformation will continue for a while. I personally think we do create value in the sense that we enable a customer to sell more products or solve problems using language and communication, hence outcomes-based solutions. The way we create value internally through the hard work of our human workforce or using automation and technology will be an important topic to discuss going forward. How we generate value is equally important as what value we create. As an industry, we need to focus more on highlighting how we do this. For example, did we help refugees find new homes through language? Did we increase the sales of a company that wanted to expand in a non-English speaking market? As you can see, it's the impact and the outcomes that matter. We need to stop talking about tools, process, quality and other things that make sense to us only and start talking the language of our customers. There you have it. I'm very happy I had a chance to speak with Nick McMahon from ULG. I am hoping you enjoyed this episode and as usual, please share your comments, thoughts, ideas, topic or guest suggestions or anything that you would like to get from this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your platform of choice. Don't forget to rate this episode with 5 stars or give us a thumbs up to promote the ratings. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode. 